All right, grab your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter number 10. All right, Genesis chapter 10 is another one of those chapters that I'm assuming a lot of us, when we have that, um, you know, that read through the Bible in a year plan, and we get to, what, probably January 3rd, maybe January 4th, um, this is one of the ones that we're like, okay, <laughs> I only have to read Genesis 9 and then Genesis 11, you know what I'm talking about, because um, it looks just like a genealogy. I would tell you that Genesis 10 is really not so much a genealogy. It's not talking about this person and this person and this person. This is, in my opinion, more like a table of nations, which is the handout that I gave you. Um, the table of nations refers to the fact that this is where all of the people groups of the world come from. And so this is talking about how people spread out across the world after the flood. Um, just imagine how important that is for your and I faith. Um, as far as archaeology goes, this is the most important chapter in the Bible. There's not a close second. Um, and there's all kinds of documents that just verify and verify more and more about the people groups mentioned in this passage. Um, it's unbelievable. Um, so the handout starts with this chapter is very important. When we talk about racial issues, very important. If I make this statement and I don't clarify, some of you might want to find another preacher. Um, but I think it's important for us to see this tonight. Um, when um, Noah and his wife, the boys, came off the flood, they probably all looked similar, you know, family, facial, uh, facial features, all very similar, skin tone, all the same. Um, as a pastor, I believe in evolution. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do. Now, we have to understand that not all evolution is the same. There is both macro and micro evolution. We should believe in macro evolution. Um, uh, we shouldn't believe in microevolution. Microevolution tells us that at some point, all of us came from one living organism and then just branched out. You know, we have apes in our history and sea creatures in our history and, you know, before that, one-celled organisms in our history. No, we don't believe in microevolution. That's natural selection. That's not what we believe in. We believe in macro evolution, which is variations in species. That's what we believe in. And we see this all over the place. This is the reason why there's not just wolves. Scientists have learned so much about macro evolution. Now we have the pleasure of poodles and chihuahuas. <laughs> right? Um, this is why there's not just tigers or lions. There's calico cats and Siamese cats and tabby cats, and all of these other different types of cats. It's macroevolution. But even besides that, 
you can take a species of butterflies from, um, say, Africa and move them to, say, Michigan. And in a hundred years or so, they will look different than the same butterflies in Africa. Why is that? They're in adapting to their environment. And because of this, things begin to change. That is not a proof of microevolution. It's a proof that the Bible's right. Okay? It's a proof that the Bible's right. This is the reason why people in the north look a little different than people down here in the south. There's a re this is one of the reasons why people in the north have different accents than people here in the south. But this is a big reason why um, people in, say, Britain look different than people in Nigeria. And people in Nigeria look different than people in China. Um, it's macro evolution. It doesn't just touch animals. It touches you and it touches me. All right? um, and so that should tell us something vitally important about racial issues. Um, in this text, we need to understand there is no attempt to link these peoples to racial divisions. Not one. This is fundamentally important because if you go to another church, even some Baptist churches will teach this. That the, we talked about it last week, the son of Ham, Canaan, was cursed by God. Hear me. There are some preachers, there are some churches, there are some religious books that will tell you that the curse of Canaan, the curse of Ham, was dark skin. Just consider what that would do for racial tension. Obviously, they're 100% wrong. The skin color differences that we see in the world are not because of a curse from God. They're because of macro evolution. Okay? I give you some of the things that's talking about here. There is nothing in here about race. In verse 5, it talks about languages, clans. That's talking about just family groups and nationalities. Um, listen, you and I might look like people from Britain, but we have a different nationality. Okay? Praise the Lord, right? World history started in 1776. Can I get a witness? Come on. All right. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, we're different nationalities. Even though we may look the same, we're still different nationalities. It's not a racial thing. And then, obviously, another very important thing is archaeology. I want to read this. This is from William F. Albright. He says, the 10th chapter of Genesis stands absolutely alone in ancient lit literature without a remote parallel. Even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to di a distribution of peoples in a genealogical framework. The table of nations, this is where I got the name for tonight, remains an astonishing, accurate document. William F. Boyce, or William um, F. Albright, was not a Christian, was not a Jew. He was a professor in England and was just amazed at Genesis chapter number 10. Why don't you and I... Read that. Look at verse number one. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. 
the sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus, and the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Rephath, and Togarmah, and the sons of Javan, Elishab, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families, and their nations. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Phut, and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sapta, and Ramah, and Septachish, whatever that one was, and the sons of Ramah, and Sheba, and Dedan. I think tonight would be a good night where we just all pick a verse. What do you all think? <laughs> Thank you. Um, and verse 8 says, And Cush begat Nimrod. We'll talk about him a lot tonight, but we'll really focus on what happens um, in chapter 11 with Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Iraq, and Akkad, and Kelnia, and the land of Shinar. So those aren't names of people. Those are names of places. In verse number um, 11. And Resen, between Nineveh and Kela, and the same is a great city. Again, verse 12 is also uh, names of places. Verse 13. And Mizraim begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Lehabim, and Nephtuhim, and Parhathrusim, and Kelsaluhim, out of whom came Philistim, and Kaphturim, and Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Het, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite. And the Arvadite, and the Zemarite, and the Hathmathite. And afterward, where the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. I'm assuming they're the ones that started like gingivitis and things like that. I just get that from their names, you know? <laughs> okay. Anyways, um, verse 19. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, and uh, uh, thou comest to Gergar and Geza, as uh, thou goest in Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma. And Zeboam, even unto Lelisha. These are the sons of Ham, after their families. Notice what it says. It says, after their families, the clan, after their tongues, what they spoke, in their countries and in their nations. Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born. The children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, that's an important name. You should underline that one. And Lud and Aram. And the children of Aram, Uz, that should ring a little bell. And Hul and Gether and Mash. And Arphaxad begat Selah, and Selah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons. The names of one was Peleg. For in the days was the earth divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Something interesting about Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided. Um, many people believe that was when they started to feel the continents 
beginning to break up and form, or the, you know, the supercontinent begin to break up to form the continents that we have today. Uh, verse 26, and Joktan beget um, Almadad and Shelef and Hazar Maveth and Jera and Hadaram and Uzzel and Dikla and Obal and Abiel and Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Jabab and all these were the sons of Joktan. I really like that because that guy was busy. <laughs> And their dwelling was from Misha, as uh, though thou goest unto Sephar, a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem. Again, it says, after the families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. What a chapter! Um, so listen, for much of this chapter, this is definitely not going to be like a preachy type message. This is just information that I think is beneficial for us Christians to have. So I pray in the next 20 minutes that we go through this that you won't just fall asleep, um, but that you'll gain something from it. Um, so these, it says, are the genealogies of the sons of Noah. Um, this is one reason why I believe that the people of God early on got busy writing things down. Um, I'm convinced that there was a, a papers, something that they wrote on, on the ark that Noah brought off with him that contained the genealogies of Noah. And since, I'm sorry, genealogies of Adam. And then when Noah came off the ark, he just kept up this process. And he began to write Shem, Ham, and Japheth began to write. And there are all of these works written down that by the time of Moses, the people of God probably had access to them um, and were able to copy down certain things that God led them to copy down, including the names of all of these different people and places. Um, so the sons were born to them after the flood. Based on what we know in verse number one, the descendants in verse number two, the descendants listed of Japheth do not share contiguous land borders, but are connected on the basis of being, the, being people by the sea. Uh, verse five, isles of the Gentiles could mean coastland people or maritime people with some obvious exceptions. Um, interesting to note, most theologians, Historians believe that you and I, you know, those of us that come from England and Germany and Italy and France, you and I are more than likely sons of Japheth. So the ones that we go to are Japheth. Um, as the biblical stage unfolds, we will see that the main conflict in the Bible is between the descendants of Ham and the descendants of Shem. So we might think of Japheth on the sidelines, just watching it all take place. Um, he really, after this passage, you hear very little about the descendants of Japheth. So let's talk about some of his descendants. Um, he was the father of the European peoples, stretching from India to the shores of Western Europe. They are each linked by linguistic similarities that may seem invisible to you and I, 
but are obvious to linguists. So let's talk about something. Gomer. It's interesting to me that two times in her Bible that there are two different individuals named Gomer. One a man and one a woman. Um, but from him we get all the Germanic peoples. French, Spanish, Celtic settlers. So you and I could probably even trace much of our lineage to a man named Gomer. Come on, Texans. <laughs> Come on, Texans. Right? I just think that's awesome. We got a great, 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 great grandpa named Gomer. Isn't that awesome? All right. Anyways, you have Magog, Tubal, and Meshach. These would settle into far north Europe. You know, the Swedens, Norways, and probably are the Russian speaking people. You have Madai from the sons of Japheth come to ancient Medes, so Persians, probably from Iran and Iraq. There would be other people that would settle there as well. We'll talk about them in a moment. Much of the people of India probably come from Japheth's family as well. Um, Javan from the son of Japheth comes from ancient Greeks, so many of the Greeks um, whose seafaring ways are described in Genesis 10 verse 5. Um, the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, so it gets more specific. These people would go to the Fertile, fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia, think that place. Uh, Torgamah from the sons of Gomer came from the Armenians. The sons of Javan get even more specific. Um, geographic names that spring from these names in this chapter abound. And so some of this is taken just from linguistics and some from just ancient traditions. So the son Kittim settled in Cyprus. Rodanim in Rhodes or Greece. Gomer would have gone to Germany and areas around that. Meshach and Tubal would have ended up in Russia. Um, the most puzzling one is Tarshish, which is interesting to me because Tarshish is a pretty famous Bible city. Um, uh, that's where, anybody tell me, who tried to get to Tarshish? Jonah. No, he tried to go to Tarshish. He was trying to run away from um, Nineveh. Yeah. Um, so he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He's trying to get to Tarshish. Um, but the problem is, theologians, archaeologists, historians don't know where Tarshish really is. Um, uh, some people have said, I think I give it to you. Um, some people have said that it might have been a Turkish city from, you know, somewhere around Joppa. But really from the text in um, Jonah, we don't think it could be there. So other people put it in Britain, the island of Great Britain, England. Um, wouldn't that be interesting if he was trying to get to the Brits? Yeah, wouldn't that be crazy? Um, and it ends the same way each section ends. This is important. Each section ends the exact same way. When Japheth is done, it ends the same way. Then it gets to Ham, and it ends the same way. The exact same way. That should teach us something. We'll talk about that at the end. Um, so we get to the descendants of Ham. Um, so one thing to note about um, Japheth, he spreads out everywhere. I mean, he goes all the way to Britain. Goodness gracious. Um, uh, and then Ham, I mean, Ham just stays. He, he gets into Africa, um, but he just he stays. The descendants of Ham are the peoples who populate Africa, Far East, where Japheth spread far and wide. At least initially, Ham stayed very close by Egypt and northern and eastern Africa, Arabia, Mesopotamia, 
in Palestine. Um, uh, you have Cush. Apparently, this family divided into two branches early. Some founded Babylon, notably Nimrod. We'll talk about him in a moment. And others founded Ethiopia. Um, then you have Mizraim. This is um, a term in the Hebrew that is always connected to Egypt, probably because it was their father's name, right? They got the name from the man, and so they called it Egypt. Put refers to Libya, the region of North Africa, west of Egypt. Canaan refers to the peoples who originally settled the land that's around Israel, all right? The sons of Cush. Cush begat, the most famous one he begat was Nimrod. He was a mighty one in the earth, but not in a good way. He ruled over Babel, which was the first organized rebellion of humans against God. In fact, the name Nimrod itself means, let us rebel. So if someone calls you a Nimrod, it's not a compliment. Um, and it means, let us rebel. So much of what is here on this page is just quotes from historians, Jewish historians. Um, I think there's a secular historian in there as well. Um, but it just talks about some of the traditions of this man named Nimrod. This is not all coming from the Bible, but we can get some things from this passage that show us a lot about this man named Nimrod, which will be very helpful as we go into chapter number 11. Um, look at the first one. Boyce is a Christian. He says, this is not talking about Nimrod's ability to hunt wild game. So when it says in verse number, um, verse number 9, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. This is not talking about him going out there and shooting deer or going out there and being able to kill a lion. This is not talking about killing any animal. Um, he was not a hunter of animals, though, I mean, he might have done that. But what he was known for was he was a hunter of men. Um, he was a warrior. It was through his ability to fight, to kill, and to rule um, that he built a kingdom in a valley city of the Euphrates Valley um, and consolidated it all together and made this nation called Babel. Nimrod was really the first worldwide tyrant. He tried to take over the world like Caesar, but maybe even worse ways. Um, he, he wanted to have a one-world government. Um, and really, I think it's interesting that really the first city that we read about is Babel. I don't, hopefully I don't have to spell it out, but I will. Babel is obviously the roots for what you and I would call, especially in Revelation, Babylon. This is where it is. Um, and so the first city that is built is literally man trying to rebel against God. It's really a man trying to become a God in the world. He's wanting the praise of all people. Um, he's wanting the worship of all people. Um, so, in fact, I want to see if you can find that. Um, let's see. Look at the one that's marked Clark. 
It's one, two, three, four, five, six, six paragraph. It starts with hence. Hence it is likely that Nimrod, having acquired the power, used it in tyranny and oppression, and by rapine and violence founded the, dom uh, do founded the domination, which was the first distinguished by the name of a kingdom on the face of the earth. How many kingdoms have been founded in the same way in various ages and nations from that time to the present? Where it all started was with Nimrod. The idea of being able to rule over people started with him. From the Nimrods of the earth. I love it. We should just call them Nimrods. When you turn on the TV and there's one of those guys, there's some in North Korea, there's some in Russia, there's some in China, just look at them and say, that's a Nimrod. Come on. That's where it comes from. Okay. Um, the next paragraph. Nimrod was responsible for the Tower of Babel. It was he who attempted to bring together the human race after the flood in an effort to get them united into a nation in which he could become the great world ruler. He was the rebel, the founder of Babel, and the hunter of the souls of men. He was the lawless one, and he is a shadow or a type of the last world ruler the Antichrist who is yet to appear. The first great civilization, therefore, came out of the sons of Ham. You get this next thing. Look at verse number 10. I think it's verse number 10. At the end of verse number 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter, before the Lord. A Bible study tip. If something is repeated, especially if it's repeated really close to one another, it's an important thing to get. And in the same verse, we had the same phrase repeated twice, before the Lord. In a lot of places in your Bible, this is a compliment. It's something that you and I should strive to be. We want to be before the Lord. Um, we want to serve our lives before the Lord. We want to worship before the Lord. All of those things are good things. But every um, theologian I looked at and looking at the language, I agree. This is a nuanced term. And in this way, it's like, um, say, after church, I said something in this message that upset Brother Ted. He said, you shouldn't have said that. He gets in my face. That's not a good thing, right? He's been working out. I don't want to take that. I don't, I don't, I don't want to go down that path. <laughs> All right. Um, but if I say, Ted got into my face, I think everybody in the room would understand the nuance of that phrase. It's not a good thing, right? Here in this passage, saying it twice especially, seems to tell me and most theologians that this was um, God um, realizing that Nimrod was rebelling in his face. Rebelling in his face. He was doing it to overthrow any worship of God. Think about at the last paragraph. Traditions abound that involve Nimrod. One that I think is 100% true. He's the originator of idolatry, 100%. I, 
I think we find that especially in chapter 11. We'll talk about that a lot next week. Um, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say he's the first world dictator. Um, many people believe that Egypt comes from Nimrod and that he started the line of the pharaohs. Um, more than likely, he's the builder or the, at least the originator of the Tower of Babel. Pagan tradition even describes to him supernatural beginnings. He is not a god, never was, but there are a lot of pagan traditions that claim him to have supernatural powers. We know he founded Babylon and can infer that um, he had a kingdom of some significance. The author doesn't tell us who spearheaded the Babel building project, um, but more than likely it was Nimrod. According to the Bible, Nimrod is clearly a human hero rather than divine or semi-divine. Just as we regard Abraham as the father of our faith, we can regard Nimrod as the father of idolatry. According to Walton, the descriptions given in verses 8 through 12 corresponds to the growth of the first known empire in history. The dynasty of Agade, ruled by Sargon, Nimrod's kingdom included Erech, the city where Gilgamesh reigned in one of the oldest and greatest centers of Sumerian culture. This is why it's so very important to know world history. Um, you have the sons of Mizraim. You talk about them in verses 13 and 14. We get Egypt from them. And then the famous Canaan. We talked about him a lot last week. He begat Sidon. The family of Sidon, the son of Canaan, went north and is related to the Hittites, the Lebanese. Het probably refers to the Hittites, an empire in Carchemish. Esau would later marry into the tribe of the Hittites. Interesting point. And the Sinite. Many people believe the Oriental peoples descended from the Sinites. Some lead the Sinites to Far East Asia. Sino could be a prefix meaning China. Apparently, there was a lot of intermingling of Canaan after they dispersed. Canaanites later became ethnically identified as Semitic peoples. But here the origin is the family of Canaan from Ham. Note the Jebusites, as they will be the ones in control over Jerusalem at the time of Saul and David. Sidon is loosely synonymous with Lebanon. Remember, geographic borders change over time. Now let's talk about the descendants of Shem. The narrator is doing something vitally important. The, um, many people believe that he starts with Japheth in this chapter because Japheth, really biblically speaking, is the least important. He goes to Ham because Ham and his descendants would be the ones that would fight against the children of Shem. But he ends with Shem to draw you and I in, not just to a huge group of people, but to a more specific family. He's showing these Jewish readers, heads up, this is your ancestral line. Hebrew and Eber are linguistically related, and he's trying to draw them in. So children were born to Shem. From Shem comes Elam, who was the ancestor of the Persian peoples. Asher, who was the father of the Assyrians. Lud, who was the father to the Lydians, who lived in the time, for a time in Asia Minor. And Aram was father to the 
Armenians, who we also know as the Syrians. And then Arphaxad was the ancestor of a man named Abram and all of the Hebrews. The sons of Aram, you have a man named Uz. Uz should sound familiar to you because one of the most famous Bible characters comes from the land of Uz. That is a man named Job. In Job chapter 1, it says Job was from Uz. The sons and descendants of Arphaxad. You have Joktan, the names after the sons of Joktan, sons of Eber, sons of Salah, sons of Arphaxad, are all associated with various Arabic peoples. And Jobab, the one named Jobab may be one that we would know as Job in the Old Testament. Then you have Sheba. Very interesting read. I hope that you'll read that. Um, but what's really being said here is it's trying to get us to close in on this family. Genesis 11 doesn't really talk much about um, the family. But once we get to Genesis 12, that's the, pretty much the rest of the Bible. This passage helps us get from the flood to the family that would later bring about the Messiah and that Messiah would be the savior of the world and the forgiver of our sins. Genesis chapter 12 is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. So a couple things. I give you these maps in this chart. Makes it real simple. Hopefully you can read that. Um, this map kind of shows you where they all ended up. Much more so with that one at the bottom. But I just want you to consider. You all have raised kids. Every single last one of us. We've all had kids. When you have brothers and sisters, when you have brothers and brothers, when you have sisters and sisters, what is something that they all do? <laughs> they fight. <laughs> they fight, right? I mean, even today, I picked up Parker early for his dentist appointment, and then we both went and got Cooper. It was two seconds. Two seconds. It wasn't, hey, Cooper, I love you. It was, hey, Cooper, you're annoying. <laughs> I mean, it just, just like that. They just, it just innate within us. And just think about it. The people that you're closest to can hurt you the worst, right? Well, you know what I see in Genesis chapter 10? Do you know what I think we need to realize? Is that when we look at people around us, at some point we're all related. And I, what I tell my kids when they fight, you all need to grow up. You need to grow up. Do you know what I think us Christians can be reminded from this passage? We need to grow up. It's time to put down the dukes and extend a welcoming hand. And then, on top of that, when we, when we see people that don't look like us, that have different cultures than us, that speak different languages than us, those shouldn't be things that divide us. That should be a time where we can learn from one another and love one another and remind ourselves that they need Jesus just like we need Jesus. This passage sows the world spread and divide. But Jesus came to bring us back together and to unite us together. So tonight, let's unite 
around Jesus. All right? Let's pray.